I'm here with Valeria Pizarro. Let's talk about coral reefs. Thank you, Andrew. So yeah, my name is Valeria Pizarro. I'm originally from Colombia. I'm, I'm a biologist as, as undergrad. I started actually studying like terrestrial mammals, monkeys mm -hmm. and tapirs. But then I did uh, my first dive in 1998, long, long time ago. And I fell in love with reefs. And when I did that, I was like, kind of, I need to go and start just diving and studying the marine environment. I didn't know what corals and coral reefs were at the moment. And I did my master's and by, by, by chance, uh, now a colleague, she introduced me to corals. And I've been studying coral since 1999, 2000. And I did my master's and my PhD on coral reefs, corals and coral reefs. And since then, I've been working mainly in the Caribbean, studying these uh, animals and these ecosystems. Wow. So, I mean, over 20 years, what sort of changes have you seen in coral reefs since you've been studying them? Oh, plenty. It's, you never think that you're going to see big changes in your lifetime, especially in ecosystems that have been in, in the earth, but like existing for such a long time, like millions of years. But in, at least in the Caribbean, I've seen reefs losing most of these corals in less than 10 years. I've seen fish populations declining. I've seen macroalgae just going up. And right now there is a, a new disease in the Caribbean that it's called the stony coral tissue disease that was first uh, spotted in, in Florida in, in 2018, no, 2014. Mm. And it's now in the Bahamas and in many places like Mexico, Belize, Honduras, and it's killing corals very, very quickly. So big, mm. big changes in 20 years. So is that like an underwater virus? It is. Uh, we know that it's a waterborne pathogen. The thing is identifying the virus or the cause of the disease or bacteria or anything in corals, it's very difficult. So imagine that you have to go down in the water, you have to take samples, but there are microbes living in the water, the microbes living in the sediment, the microbes living in the mucus that the corals produce. So every time you take a sample, you take samples from different things. So being able to identify and say, this is the cause, it takes really long time. So we haven't, or scientists, I'm not, I'm not a molecular scientist, so, but the people that we've been working and collaborating with, we, yeah, they haven't been able to find out exactly which is the pathogen causing this, this disease. Hmm. And what, what is the nature of your research? Have you been studying one thing over the course of your diving career, or has it been multiple facets? It has been many things. Um, I've been focusing mainly uh, studying corals as, um, in terms of population dynamics. But of course, if you study corals, you, you end up studying coral reef dynamics, right? Mm, yeah. Corals are the main builders of the coral reef, so everything that you do with corals will, at the end, 
uh, affect how everything works in the in coral reefs. So I've been doing like basic research in terms of coral populations. I've been doing more complex research on coral connectivity within Caribbean reefs. I've been doing coral diseases, collaborating with, with other scientists to try to, yeah, to identify pathogens from different diseases. I've been doing, I've been involved as well in coral management. I've been working with um, organizations that are in charge of developing um, manage, management policies. Uh, I've been working as well on coral conservation. I was in three years ago involved for many years in the conservation of a reef in Colombia that is Varadero Reef. That is a really beautiful, unique reef that we found in, in 2013. And they want to dredge a, a shipping channel. So I was involved in that and creating a hope spot with other people. So it was a really a big team of people just trying to conserve this reef. So far, so good, but they still want to uh, dredge the, the channel. And now I work for organization here in the Bahamas and we do different things. We do coral restoration. We do, we are working now with this new coral disease in terms of we are part of the task force that was created by the Bahamian government to try to tackle the spread of this disease in, in reefs. But we do as well, like different projects depending on what they have. If they have to move corals for a, for a development, we will, we will work as, as much as we can, we will, uh, we will be involved in that. So everything that is related with corals and coral reefs. Mm. When we were in Belize diving a couple weeks ago, um, one of my my wife's favorite things are sponges and corals, and we love learning about new like coral species that we see. And on this last trip, we started seeing a ton of zoanthids, and it was cool to see that they're individually or like in a cluster or a small colony. So, have you studied? Zoanthids, like, have you been studying diverse corals? I haven't studied zoanthids. Uh, there are another, so every time that you study what kind of organisms, especially if they are spongers or corals or zoanthids, they are so complex that being able to study every single uh, family order uh, on a reef, it takes a long time. Uh, I think that when you start diving, as you probably are, diving and going more and more in the water, you start switching from wanted to see, of course, it's always great to see sharks and see turtles and, and rays and everything. I think that is great. But when you start diving a lot, you start looking for the small things, like the zoanthids, when you have the solitary zoanthids, when you have like the nudibracs. So you start just going to the small things. So I, I cannot say that I'm the expert of coral reefs and that I know everything. I just start to look into smaller things. I will be able to say if that is a zoanthid or not, if, if for some I will be able to say what a species is, but I have to say I'm not an expert on every single animal that lives on reefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the same for us. Oftentimes we're at the very back of the dive group because we're trying to just focus on like 
a five foot by five foot area and find everything that's in there because we love finding the small stuff and it's so rewarding too it's like you're mining treasure almost when you get to find this unique small tiny organism yeah yeah no i'm i'm the same i'm always like with a camera just trying to see what can i see and i'm trying not to get a new camera with a new macro so i can just go for mac photography mm. so a question that i was really curious about to ask you was so there's this disease affecting coral there's also it feels like a narrative across the world of people saying that the oceans are becoming more acidic, temperatures are rising, causing coral to expel. Um, is it zooxanthia? Is that how you say it? Zooxanthellia or zooxanthellia? Yeah. yeah. And so I was just curious, is that acidification, is the change in temperature really that big of a problem for coral reefs? Temperature, it's right now one of the main global threats for coral reefs. So corals, they, they have a very small tolerance range in terms of temperature. So they are really, they really like tropical temperatures. Most of them, of course, they are always a case that they live in closer to temperate areas. So they, they will have a, a, a higher range, a wider range of temperatures, but corals usually are found where temperatures range. And again, I'm gonna talk about uh, Celsius. I know, I know, I know one of, the, of them in Fahrenheit because it's easy, but they really like to be between 28, that is 82 Fahrenheit to 30 they're really bad of coping with higher temperatures or even lower temperatures. In areas like the Bahamas where I am, that the temperatures can range between uh, 30 during summer and maybe can go down to 2017 during winter. Mm. They, 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 they can handle that, but because they've been in this area for a long time. So when you have, but when you have like temperatures going up than 30, you will have a problem. And especially because corals, so they are animals, but they have a symbiosis with these microscopic um, algae that are the zooxanthellae. When the temperatures go up, there is a part of the zooxanthellae that as the, they do photosynthesis, and they have two systems. One of the systems starts to fail and produce um, a chemical that triggers the expulsion of the zooxanthellae from the coral, yeah? So it is a major threat because we have climate change and climate change in many areas, not everywhere, means that temperatures are increasing. And these increasing temperatures just results in this, just getting rid of the zooxanthellae. The consequence for the coral is that corals with this symbiosis, they, need the zooxanthellae to be able to get all the nutrients that they need to, to survive. So if the bleaching continues, because the coral is taking zooxanthellae all the time, right? Just to try to see, but then again, temperature is too high, the photosystem is failing, so they don't retain the zooxanthellae. If they keep doing that for a long time, they will die for starvation. That's, that's really it. 
So it is a big problem and it's one of the main causes of coral die-offs in many regions, including the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Uh, the um, um, acidification, it is a big problem, but it depends on the region. So acidification is happening, but it's happening faster in some areas, especially in areas with low water temperatures, just because of the, 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 the gases law, I think that has a kind of, so when the water, when the temperature is lower, the water, it's able to retain more CO2. As it retains more CO2, acidification increases. So in places where we have like warmer temperatures, acidification is happening, but it's happening in a really low rate, which is good because then we don't have two things happening at the same time. Yeah, mm -hmm. increasing water temperature and acidification. It is happening in some areas, but it's not like in the tropics, it's not happening as fast as in some other areas. But it will be it will be a problem, of course, because mm -hmm. then we won't have of course we won't be able to synthesize calcium carbonate that is what they're sustain like their exoskeletons, but it is as well what builds up coral reefs. When the coral expel is is that a a mechanism like i'm curious why the coral would expel them at all because they they're not giving them the food that it needs because it's producing some chemical that it's uh distressing them so oh. it, uh, yeah it's the result of uh of something happening like physiologically in the coral that they will just get rid of them. Uh -huh. They will always start to like kind of taking algae in, but again, so the cells and telly, they live freely in the water. You will find them, if you take a sample, you will find them in the water column all the time. Mm. So they can actually take and take them. I think that there, is, there are different species and some corals doing an evolution, they just have uh, this symbiosis is just with one species. Uh -huh. That's that's more difficult. So there are some cells in tillage that they are more heat tolerant. And so when they are heat tolerant, they, they will be able to perform very well with mm -hmm. warmer temperatures. But some that they are really specific, like symbiosis specific, they are not able to tolerate it. And that's when, when we are losing some specific species. That was going to be my next question was, so every coral species expels at a slightly different temperature or time, right? It's not as if the water hits 32 yeah. degrees Celsius and then all the coral are just expelling. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it depends. Of course, I don't know if you have ever seen uh, chasing corals that they did. There is a documentary on Netflix about coral yeah. reaching. And you have this reef that they show that it looks like purple, that it's amazing, or blue, bright blue. I don't remember right now. I think it's bright blue. Really nice. And if you see like that reef, it's monospecific. So it's the same species. Of course, the temperature will affect all that species almost at the same time. But if you go to a reef where you have many different species, you will have some that will bleach. And not every single colony from the same species will do. So one of the things for some species that 
scientists have found is that some of them are able to take in different species of cells and tele, and some of them are able to take the ones that are heat tolerant. So if all corals can do that, then we will be able probably to save more corals that are with heat tolerant symbionts. Mm -hmm. There are some pretty, like what I know about coral preservation just comes from really like low hanging fruit, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So like the micro fragmenting practice. Do you do micro fragmenting in your work? Yeah, uh, I've done it. I've done it several times. So corals are animals, right? And we all, well, hopefully we all know that. <laughs> but corals are, are really great organisms because they have, they are clonal organisms. And that means that one coral, most of them, they are colonies. And when they're colonies, they are hundreds of individuals with the same genetic information, right? Same DNA. So what you can do is, it's like we do with plants. We all have, and we do it as well, our aunts, our uncles now, everything, like everyone just take a little piece of a plant, put it in water, and then they will have developed roots and then you can plant them, right? So in corals, they won't have roots, that's important, but you can take a piece of a coral that it's a colony, you can cut it in small pieces, you can outplant them in different places or even in, in a land-based um, facility, and then they will start growing. Because when you cut them, you can have several of the same individuals there and they will start growing and just act as a, as a colony. So that's what we use when we are doing coral restoration is we're using that clonal biology to be able to outplant many corals into the field in a short period of time. So when you do microfragmentation, one of the things is corals, when they are really small, they have higher growth rates. When the coral is huge, like when you have like, I don't know, like two foot or three foot corals, their growth rates decreases with size. Hmm. So when you cut them in really tiny pieces, they will start growing more. So we're using that to create bigger colonies in shorter times. Mm -hmm. So is there, it seems like what you're saying is the coral grow to an optimal size and then don't grow beyond that. No, they can, they can grow and actually they can grow forever for the, all the time that they're oh, alive. Okay. But when they get bigger, the growing rates are going to be lower than they when they were smaller. Mm, okay. So everything in, in coral dynamics and, and coral population dynamics is based on size. So you can see you can see a huge colony and you can say like, oh my God, this is a very old individual, right? Mm. But then you can see a small piece in one like kind of and the rest of the colony is dead the coral itself could be hundreds of years because they can have partial mortality. So you can have the size of the coral, the coral can reduce on time, but it will be a coral that when they first settled, it was 20 years ago. So that's why they have this very complex and from my point of, from my point of view, very interesting biology because you can base everything from size and use that for restoration. Um, yep. 
conservation. So uh, another great experience I got to have in Belize was I got to go lionfish hunting for the first time. Do you find that lionfish have an impact on the coral directly? I think that I think that you can. You have to have like a train eye because I don't think that is that evident in terms mm -hmm. of you go there and you see a lionfish and if you have if you don't have the information of how fish populations were before the lionfish was there, you wouldn't be able to tell, right? Yeah. So lionfish, what we know now is that they are they're very good hunters and they prey on almost everything. So it's always good. Yeah, it's great that you went lionfish hunting. It's and they're really tasty. I don't know if you did you <laughs> ate them then? Yeah, yeah, we got to eat them on the boat. So they're really tasty. So it's something that it's that it that is in our favor in terms of we can actually hunt them and then we can like fishermen can get money from them. So it's a really good thing. But convincing people because at the beginning they were saying, oh yeah, they they have they are venomous animals, right? And then when you try to explain to them, like, no, 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 you can hunt them, that's okay, just be aware of the, yeah. the fins of the spines, and then you will be fine with that. That is still tricky. So people is that some fishermen are like, no, I'm not gonna do it because I know that they kill people. And like, no, they don't kill anyone, but they kill fish, and you have to get rid of them. Yeah. The main problem we have now is that they're going down to deeper reefs when it's difficult to go, especially if you're doing like free swimming, like free diving to hunt them. Now mm -hmm. you cannot reach them. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was doing some research and there was an interesting study that came out of the Bahamas about lionfish. And it was talking about how destructive they can be. And it said in a span of five weeks, they can eat and kill up to 76% of the invertebrates and fish in a reef area. Yeah. And yeah. When, when we were hunting, there were fish falling out of their mouths up on the deck of the boat. Like they just are voracious and kept eating and, eat, and eating. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I have a colleague that he's been studying their diet for a very long time and how it changes with age and how it changes as they go deeper and deeper. And yeah, it's what you say, like every time that he got one, he will open the stomach to get everything. And you could see so many fish and invertebrates and the impact is big. But again, I think that if, if you don't know what it has been there before, you wouldn't notice. Yeah. No. So beyond that invasive species impact, do the coral have any sort of symbiotic or mutualistic relationship with the other fish or the crabs, the species around them? They, I don't know if you can tell, if you can say that they have a symbiotic relationship with other animals, they for sure have a really, like really good, uh, evolve I don't know how to say that like like they have been evolving together and of course you find things that are really interesting like the cleaning stations I don't know if you have heard of them so yeah. you have coral reef these cleaning stations and then you can see fish just going online to get cleaned by the shrimps and small fish and the good thing about this is that if 
a fish comes there and they are doing servicing, right? Like going up and they can go into the mouth and cleaning the, the gills and everything. If one of the fish tries, tries to eat one of the cleaners, they stop servicing him. Like kind of that fish won't be able to go back to that service station because they will be like kind of, and I don't know how you how they do it. Like, of course, they don't think like us. So, but like they, that specific fish, like yeah, they'll know what it fish. was. It will. We will be like kind of nope. You you try to eat us. You are not gonna get it. Getting service. So I don't know how how that work in evolution, but it's like you see all these different things that is like it's amazing how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. So was there anything else that you wanted to say about how interesting or great corals are? I don't know. I think that is fascinating. At least for me, it's been fascinating that every time that I, since I started studying coral reefs, so they are, they're very simple, right? They are like upside down mm -hmm. jellyfish, right? And, but they build a, an exoskeleton and that's it. Like if you see, they don't have like brains and the nervous system is very yeah. simple. Like everything in terms of morphology, it's very, very simple. But in terms of ecology and their behavior, it's very complex. And I think that is fascinating how, how this happens in nature. And it's not only corals, but of course, because it's my what I study, I found it every time more and more fascinating. So one of the things that we do as well, it's we do coral restoration by larval propagation. So when you cut them, microfracting, we call that asexual um, restoration because mm. you are just fragmenting and you, you, you just use the clonality of these organisms for restoration. When you do larval propagation is you study coral reproduction you corals, we have corals, and that's why they're so fascinating. They have some species that they are hermaphrodites and they release female and male gametes into the water column at the same time in what we call a gamete bundle, right? You have other species that they have hermaphrodites, but one year they will be male and the following one, they will be females. They ha you have like other species that they just produce female gametes and male gametes and they will release them. And you have other ones that they will release like the sperm and they will have internal fertilization and will release the plant, the larvae when it's ready. Mm -hmm. So you have all the different combinations that you can imagine. Wow. But with these ones that they release the, the gametes into the water column, we collect after, of course, spending many, many nights diving to try to find out when did they spawn at what time and everything. You go there, you, we collect the gametes, and then in, um, in a land facility, we do the fertilization, and then we rear the embryos and the larvae, and we provide them to substrates. So they're tiny, this less than half millimeter big uh, larvae goes to, to to the bottom to a substrate and they will settle there they will recruit and if everything goes fine in the next 50 years you will have um, an organism that can be up to one meter 
in mm -hmm. diameter. So it's fascinating that from this tiny thing, you get this huge animal that is plays on such an important role for, for us. Mm -hmm. with, the, with the release of the, the gametes into the water, have you found that the rising temperature affects that release or that production by hermaphrodites or the asexual species? We don't know exactly if water temperature affects its release. I, mm. I think from what we have seen, I will say like not yet, but if there is a bleaching event mm -hmm. prior to the, the gamut releasing, if it's a really extreme bleaching event, most of the colonies will not spawn. Like the, I, and maybe it's related because they won't have enough not nutrients, so they won't invest the energy of producing gametes. Mm. And remember, we're talking about um, an organism can, that can live 50, 100 years, and they will be reproducing every single year, not since the time of the, of the birth, of course, but they will do it from when they get like a medium size and they will reproduce every single year. So missing one year because they have to invest on maintaining themselves, that's okay in terms of evolution. And they, they release the gametes, but the survival in nature is very low. It's less than 0.1% during each spawning event. But again, it goes related with evolution. So in theory, if you want to succeed as a species, you have to produce one organism during your life's lifespan. So we're talking about that they have many, many chances to mm. be able to produce this one individual. Mm -hmm. Another burning question that I have is, so when we were in Belize, I was looking up research papers that have been happening in the area where we were, which was Ambergris K. And I was learning so much about how sponges compete with coral for resources and with, with just all of the sad news about coral bleaching and coral death across the planet. I just wondered if you felt like we were in this transition where oceans were going from predominantly reef-based to now like sponges are gonna be the next coral reefs. I wonder if, just if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, so we, at least in the Caribbean, we've seen um, a switch from corals to macroalgae. And I will say for sponges, it depends on the area. I've seen it as well in some areas, mm. uh, especially those that have a lot of river input, that of course comes with a lot of nutrients, a lot of sediments. So sponges are really happy on those environments because they filter water and they, they feed into in organic material. So I, do, I, I have seen it like in, in places where you have all the sewage waste from the cities, mm -hmm. you will have a switch, not only to, you will have more macroalgae than usual, but you will have like huge sponges. And yeah, in every place that I've been that it's influenced by rivers and sewage waste, you will have an increase on, on sponges. And there are some reefs that actually now you can see a domination of sponges and not coral or macroalgae. I don't think that it's going to be 
in every single place. Like I don't see it happening here in the Bahamas. Mm. Because we do have, of course, waste coming from the islands to, to the sea. But the, the nature of the waters here, you will have them just in some areas that are highly, highly uh, inhabited, like Nasonio province that we have, like the main population in the Bahamas is in, on this island. Mm -hmm. And an, another facet of it was, I didn't know this, but sponges are poisonous or toxic to many animals that eat them. There's only a few, like I always see turtles chomping on sponges. Yeah. But I just thought it was fascinating because if sponges start to take over, they don't have, they're not recognized as a food source or they're harmful to animals as a food source. Yeah, no, they have a lot of chemicals on, on, on top of that they have, so they don't have like a proper skeleton as the corals, but they have silicone um, I'm going to say spines, but I don't know if that is the correct name of that. I know that they are, there's, oh my God, I don't know how that word is in English. Uh, Silis, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but they, so when you, when, when an animal will go on by them, they not only will have like a lot of chemicals, produced but as well like the spines can go into their mouth so they don't do it sea turtles are the usual ones but they only feed on some of them not in every single spot mm -hmm. it will be just some of them and and they actually they they study the chemicals that they produce uh, especially to try to get chemical compounds that can be used on the pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. because they do have a lot of chemicals for for the fence yeah so these chemicals can be can be first of all they have to go through a very long process to be able to see if like the composition how is their action in different things but then they can start synthesizing it if it's a good thing so they are doing a lot of it's called bioprospection on sponges just to see how they do in terms of Hmm. creating new new drugs mm -hmm. all right last question that i want to ask you is i'm really curious about what you see as humans role in intervening in the coral crisis the human role in general I guess how much humans? involvement should we have and like playing, playing God with the ocean and ecosystems, like with micro fragmenting with those practices. I think that I think that we, my point of view, and of course I I do coral restoration, and I know there is a lot of scientists that don't agree with it, but I think that we have to intervene because we are losing coral reefs in a, a, on so quickly that if we don't do anything. We're just gonna lose it, and that will be that will be bad not only for people that lives like close to the reefs or fishermen that depends on reefs. This will go further and will affect people that live within the continents that don't even know what coral reefs are. So I do think that we have to be very active, and we have to do. We are we're still we have to do a lot of work still. Not only 
continue with coral restoration, we have to scale up coral restoration. Right now, the scales that we work, even if we produce thousands of corals in these coral nurseries, our scale is still very small and we need to scale up. And on top of that, we need to inform people that they don't know about corals, coral reefs, because we do need to get as many people involved, at least just to understand what corals and coral reefs are, right? It's not that they become, yeah, restoration practitioners or anything, but <laughs> that to understand that the role that they play when they're doing different things, like how are we affecting these ecosystems? And this can be as a, as a snowball, that it can grow and grow and grow, and then it will not only uh, have positive effects on coral reefs, but as well as any coastal marine ecosystems. Hmm. So you're on the side of restoration, but there are, are you saying you get backlash from scientists saying you shouldn't be intervening uh, in these ways? Yeah, there are scientists that they think that money shouldn't be expending like on coral restoration, that they don't think that the success is real, uh, that it should be more into, into understanding what is causing coral reef laws and management strategies. And I do agree that we have to invest in that. But I do mm. think that we do, we have to do everything. It, it's not only let's do coral restoration and leave science behind. No, it's like, let's put everything together. This is like a toolbox. We need to use every tool we have to try to save them. Mm. Part of the reason that I, like we have an underwater camera, so we take videos and photos and that's, it's really important to me to just give people awareness, even if it's, I mean, it's through a screen, it's through social media or technology, which just pales in comparison to actually being there, but it's something. If there were one way that we could improve awareness, do you have any suggestions for that? Uh, not really, but not. But I, I'm gonna say that I'm not the. Um, probably I don't have the, the best knowledge of how to do that. I think that that's one of the, that's one of the weakest things. So I don't know how the weakest link in science is like we scientists are so bad sometimes for communicating things that we. That's something that I always say like we need to work on this. So, I do use social media and usually what I post is mostly like that, like you were saying, like photos and trying to get people to understand what I'm looking at and things like that. I don't know if it works. I always, I think that it has to be trying to involve as many people, but especially kids. I do think that kids have like the possibility of telling adults about things. Mm. So I do trust like, yeah, young people, kids, they are key. And especially because we adults, we usually, we are so now thinking that we are right in everything that it's more difficult to convince them. But mm. I don't have a secret, I don't have, yeah, I have no idea how to do it. Mm. All right, well, Dr. Pizarro, thank <laughs> you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew.